From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LeBlanc. When I first heard that there was a scholar who had devoted a significant part of her research agenda to the history of dogs and art, the only thing that came to mind was the famous and much reproduced series of paintings of dogs playing poker. The first of those paintings by an artist named Cash Coolidge was produced in 1894 and then more followed in the early 1900s when Coolidge was hired to paint a series as part of an advertising campaign for a cigar company. But it turns out that my vantage on dogs in art was exceptionally and even comedically limited. And given the role dogs have played alongside humans for thousands and thousands of years, it should probably come as no surprise that they frequently show up in our art. Playing poker, yes, but also protecting us, guiding us, supporting us, entertaining us, and helping us say things about ourselves to others. Laura Gelfand is deeply interested in this relationship, and it's been a big part of her work as an art historian which engages the vibrant interdisciplinary world of animal studies with a particular focus on dogs and wolves. She was the editor of the book Our Dogs, Ourselves, Dogs in Medieval and Renaissance Art, Literature, and Culture, and spent much of 2018 and 19 as a Fulbright Scholar in the Department of History of Art at the University of York, where she conducted research on historical representations of wolves. And her essay, The Wolf at the Door and the Dog at Her Feet, was recently published in Home Cultures, the Journal of Architecture, Design, and Domestic Space. Laura Gelfin, welcome to Undisciplined. Why, thank you. You've, you've been an art historian for nearly 30 years. <laughs> I'm sorry. But who's counting? But who's counting? I, well, missed, I started as an infant, so... <laughs> In that time, there have been a few different themes in your studies. There's like 15th century pilgrimages and the different roles of nobility in art. And I, I was trying to trace back when this dog thing happened to you. And it seems so something happened. Something happened around 2008, 2009. You give this presentation at the Akron Art Museum on mm-hmm. a brief history of dogs and art. And then after that, it became... It didn't become the only thing in your work, but it became a pretty big part of your work. So I'm really, I'm interested in what it was in your life that sparked this thing. Um, so it's funny to think about, right? Sort of the cha- the trajectory that your life takes and how your research develops. And it does sort of have an organic quality that you don't realize, I think, when you come out of grad school, where you're going to end up. And I feel like I probably have a a broader trajectory than most people. But I think our history allows for that. It is interdisciplinary in and of itself. And so it gives you the opportunity to play with things. And so I've always liked animals. Like at one point I was recently at my mom's house and she was sort of like, can you get some of your old stuff out of here? And I found all of these teeny weeny little animals that I had collected as a kid. (laughs) And I just like, and I still do that, you know, and I just thought, oh my gosh, I've always done this. But um, yeah, I gave that talk in Akron. I've, I've always had dogs. I love dogs. They're a big deal to me. And I don't think I ever thought I could really work on them. It just seemed like a, not a legitimate thing to do. And so for a long time, my work really was focused on 
the mechanics of piety, the mechanics of sort of how people engage with religion. And that could be through buildings, through objects, all of that. Which seems like such more like a very academic, heady yes. subject yes. than dogs and art. But the thing is, dogs are actually incredibly, I mean, it's endlessly interesting. It's endlessly intellectual once you start to tease it apart and look at all of the different ways they show up, what they're doing in the pictures, like how they're being used, all of that. And so it's actually so much more intellectually interesting and challenging to me than what I did for a very long time. And, and you know, when I first heard about your work, I, I have to admit that I first thought, oh, well, that's a really narrow niche. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting, uh -huh. but I thought it was like, like so, oh, my dogs and art, how big of a deal can that be? And then as I thought about it more, yeah. I realized I had been seeing dogs and art everywhere without seeing it right like the the northern renaissance painter jean van eyck snuck a dog into the arnolfini portrait and uh louis meyer did his self-portrait with a dog on his lap and and so i guess it, it shouldn't surprise me dogs are such a ubiquitous part of human life but is is that why i was missing it do you think i think some of it is that i think that people don't really look for them they may look past them or look through them and i think a lot of people do that in real life too you know you don't whereas i'm always looking at dogs like i if i see a dog i'm i'm sort of like oh and i'll you know i'll go over and talk to the dog and i i'm just I've always been engaged with them. And so I've always looked at them and looked for them in images probably more than most people. But once you start it, you start to realize they're everywhere. And I'm going to do a paper in February at a conference where I'm exploring, among other things, the fact that I think they're disproportionately sort of showing up in portraits as an accessory. And I think there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. But one is that after somebody's dead, I think most people don't really care if they don't if you don't know who the person in the portrait is you don't really care about it but people who like looking at dogs like looking at dogs and so if there's yeah and i think if there's a dog right i think if there's a you don't care who the dog is you know so but it's so i think that if the dog is in a portrait the portrait actually has greater longevity and it gets shown more and i'm not sure how to sort of prove this but i just feel like they seem overrepresented in museums in a way that makes me think that's what's happening oh that's really interesting so so do you think this is a conscious thing that the people who are are in the portraits and the and the painters of the portraits are thinking about or is it you is know, it something yeah. I don't know, right? I that I don't know and I'm not even sure if you could figure that out. There are definitely families that have their own personal dogs recorded, right? And it's obvious like that these are portraits of dogs. They are very specific dogs that these people are obviously attached to enough to pay a lot of extra money to have their dog in the picture. And whether it's just a kind of bonus that the picture then has greater longevity and is shown more, or if they have some sense that that's likely, I don't know. I would have to really dig around, I think, in archives and see if anyone flat out says, hey, sh you know, put a dog in my picture because, <laughs> you know, I want, I want this, you know. I think mostly people do it because they want to remember their dogs. They want to remember the dogs that they loved. And I mean, as soon as photography starts, dogs are immediately in those pictures. As soon as you have film, um, dogs show up in films, right? They're always there and you just have to be looking for them. Yeah. Dogs show up really big in medieval art and literature. And you you edited a book on this subject and, and in the introduction of that book, you wrote that dogs 
play all sorts of roles in art and literature during this time period. They were icons, they were sinners, they were saints, they were urban citizens and laborers. And, you know, of course, dogs aren't the only animals that become symbols of something. But is there another animal that has been a symbol of so many different things? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I I don't know. I I don't think it works the same way for any other animal because I think our relationship with dogs is just so different. And so loads and loads of animals show up and you have, you know, all of those hunting paintings where you've got lots and lots of dead game. And then you've got, you know, scenes of domesticated uh, environments in which you've got, you know, cows and horses are very, very popular. But I think that in terms of flexibility, in terms of the various things they can represent, dogs probably have a bit more um, leeway. You're able to do more with them just because they play such a key role in our lives and they've been with us for a long, long time. I mean, cats do show up for sure, but... um, they're a little bit less easy to probably pose with and, and get them to do what you want. They can represent... Famously. Yes, right? They can <laughs> represent evil things. They can represent good things. But I don't see them having the kind of flexibility that dogs do as an iconographic model. When I look at a scene or a person depicted in a painting that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. I I have a hard time connecting with that person. But I I got to say like if there's a dog there and I'm not I'm a cat person, I'm not a dog person, but like but I like people love their dogs then and they love their dogs now and it's like all of a sudden there there is this point of connection yeah. across all of those all of that history. I absolutely agree. I mean and it, the dog like I don't know if you've seen the cover of the book that I edited, but mm-hmm. I've always been obsessed with that dog because it's so fat and it's so <laughs> obviously a pampered pet. And I just, it's personality, all of it, right? It's its just everything about that dog is perfection to me because, you know, the guy who's kneeling with it in prayer in front of the Virgin Mary, you know, with the Christ child, I mean, all of that is imaginary, but that dog is super real. And that part is so interesting to me, that sort of desire to have the world, something about your world in this image. Like, I don't know why you would have an image of a portrait of your dog in a painting with you and the Virgin, but there's, there it is, you know, there it is. and it's great. What, what is, what painting is that dog from? So it is, um, it's an unknown artist. He's called the master of 1499. Like we don't really, we don't know. Oh my God. I I want to be called the master of 1499. (laughs) Do you? I don't know. I think it'd be nice to have your name known to be honest, but, (laughs) but it's this, um, there's a very famous, like Jan van Eyck, who you mentioned earlier, actually paints a very famous painting that's in the Louvre of the donor who's in this painting, the one that's on the book cover. Um, paint, it's His name is um, Nicolas Roland, and his son, Jean Roland, becomes a cardinal. And so it's a painting of Cardinal Jean Roland with the virgin and child, and well, it's a, a nativity, and then this dog. And the dog is sitting on his red cardinal's robes, which is in and of itself really interesting. And so that's why you see him against this background. But it's it's this incredibly kind of fat, strange looking dog that its ears have been docked, like sort of overly docked. And it looks kind of 
like it, it's sort of a pug something. There's something, it's an, it's not a breed we definitely have at all, but it's so obviously a beloved pet of this man. And the man seems to have no personality at all, but the dog gives him a personality. And I think that's great. <laughs> you, you just mentioned breeds and being able to recognize breeds. Do you, when you're going through all of this art from from all of this history, do you see dogs that are, I assume you see some that are instantly recognizable, but you must see quite a few that don't seem to fit in with any of the breeds that we have today. So breeds as we think of them are really a 19th century conception. There's nothing quite like them before. You have kind of types, right? You have hunting dogs or you know various kinds of dogs that are used for sport. Uh, and then, you know, sort of small lap dogs, which tend to be associated with women. So there is a kind of gendered aspect to what kind of dog people are being shown with. But breeds, like the sort of way we know breeds, is really a 19th century invention. And, and they, some revisit things. So there's a whole bunch of work that's been done on, what are they called? Um, they seem like Maltese. So the Maltese is clearly there's something that looks like a Maltese that shows up in these 17th century paintings that they bring back deliberately in the 19th century. But it, it doesn't exist as a Maltese before then. I think I heard you say in a presentation once that there are a lot of dogs in art, like too many to count, but there's not so many wolves. And these two animals that are really genetically so close to one another, since all modern dogs are descendants of domesticated wolves, they're they're represented very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've worked on wolves quite a bit as well. So I sort of tell people I focus on canids now, like everything is about canids. Um, and wolves are different. I almost think that they show up more in literature than they do visually. And part of that may be because it's hard to tell the dog from the wolf in an image. And it's even, I mean, if you think about it, there, are, there was an awful story that happened earlier this year with this woman who went out hunting and thought she'd killed a wolf and skinned it and bragged about it and posted it online. And in fact, she had killed an abandoned husky. And the backlash has been huge from that. And some of it, I think, is because it was a woman. But some of it is because... I think people are really uncomfortable with trying to separate the dog from the wolf. And it's a phrase that shows up quite a bit. Um, they, they can look very similar. And there are, you know, sort of wolf-dog hybrids that can be high-content wolf-dogs. I mean, it's, it's not a clear line. There is no clear demarcation there. And so it's a place of um, liminality and insecurity for people. Hmm. You, you've said that our homes are central to the identity we've constructed for dogs, and wolves have come to represent everything that's not home. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, so they're the wilderness. They're everything scary that's outside. They're Little Red Riding Hood's nemesis. They're, you know, they eat grandma. They, they, they do all these awful, these things that they don't do, you know, and they've been so 
politicized and they're so polarizing that um, I'm right now working on this kind of angry screed. I don't know. I feel very uncomfortable working on it because I never allow my emotions into my work. It's the first time I've ever kind of given myself the opportunity to do that. But wolves are a very emotional thing for me. And I think for a lot of people, people either love them or hate them. And it's based on what you've learned about them. It has nothing, most of us have no experience with real wolves as opposed to dogs, right? Many of us have some experience with dogs, but wolves are this sort of alien thing that's out there. And they've been eradicated from most of the US. They were eradicated from England. I think the last ones were killed in Scotland in the 17th century. And so, and they're, you know, unless somebody brings them back, they're not coming back since it's an island. And there's a lot of debate. I mean, we've got Yellowstone right up the street, sort of thinking about, you know, do people want them back or not? I don't think most people realize that in 2021, the Utah State Legislature actually passed a constitutional amendment banning wolves in the state of Utah. It wasn't just a law. It was a a constitutional amendment? Yes. Yes. They were serious about keeping those wolves out. They were serious. Yeah, it is, makes no sense at all. Is <laughs> this emotionality, this this passion that people have, like you say, for and against wolves, is that has that shifted over time and in particular in, in contemporary art? Mm. Um, so like I said, I don't think wolves, they don't show up that much. When they show up, they often are with dogs as a way of kind of establishing a contrast between good and bad or domestication and you know, the home and, and everything that isn't home, they show up in different ways, but they're there in a comparative way. There are very few, other than wolf hunts, you don't really see images of wolves all that often or illustrations of fairy tales. You see wolves there, but um, there are a couple of saints that every once in a while have wolves with them, but they just don't have the kind of flexibility as uh, a visual metaphor that that dogs have, but in art, they are a lot less common and they're usually the villain. And when people, if that's all you know about wolves, that's what you're going to think they are. Yeah. What, I, I guess we could say that a little bit for dogs too. I feel like there's been a simplification in contemporary art. And I'm thinking about like anthropomorphized dogs. There's just a lot of like the tongue wagging, big eyed, they're loyal, right? They're loyal, they're loyal, they're loyal. And that that's your dog. That's your dog now. Do you share that perspective that there's been a simplification of this, the symbolism? I don't know if it's the symbolism so much as the idea of the dog as a pet has become more and more established. There are fewer people who I think have their dogs live outside all the time. There are fewer people who don't see their dog as a member of the family. I think that there's been a shift in our perception of dogs and how they fit into the family or don't fit into the family. And I I guess art is sort of following that, right? So it's, it's looking at the lead of what the context is, what the cultural construction of them is. And so that's maybe why you're seeing what you're seeing. Do you have a favorite modern dog? <laughs> My dog. Well, I, I meant a modern dog <laughs> in art, but <laughs> tell what. Okay, I'm going to come back to that question. Tell me about your okay. dog. Oh, my beautiful Mirabelle. So she is 15 and she is a Belgian sheepdog. And when you look at images of wolves, they look just like her. It's so much fun. It's actually really, really funny how much she looks like a wolf. And sometimes I think maybe that's where I, why I went in that direction. 
but um, she's gorgeous and she's really incredibly old and she's become very, very um, sweet and feeble. She used to be a lunatic. So I, I kind I definitely miss her lunacy, but it's, it's lovely having this very sweet soul around the house. Have you had her since she was a pup? Yeah, she was teeny when we got her. She was so little. Oh, she was amazing. And I remember when her ears stood up, like first one went up and then the other, and it was just so fabulous. And we've I, the house is filled with pictures of her. Like I've commissioned all these paintings of her. I mean, there's so much Mirabelle everywhere. It's great. She's an unbelievably amazing dog. So yes, that's my favorite dog. Well, I'm okay. So I'm doing the math now. And this gets back to a question I asked you earlier about... You know, how did this get started? Mirabelle came around right around the same time that you started this focus. Was that a was that part of it? Maybe. I mean, I some of I mean, the the reason that the book happened, the book that I edited was because I was a department head and I was so busy kind of doing department head stuff that I couldn't really concentrate on my work, but I could edit a book. Like that was something I could do. Like I couldn't come up with anything original, but I could do something like that. And so I I chaired a session at this big conference, this big medieval conference, um, which is always in Kalamazoo. And the first one was called Dogs, 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 Exclamation Point. And I had so many people send me stuff. Like, it was so popular. It was packed. There were loads of people there. Well, it was so popular that the next year you did Dogs, 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 Do, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Doggy. It was Doggy Do. Doggy Do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny. I used to have, it's very fun. This is a very fun thing to work on. That was also packed. And so then I just sort of asked people if they wanted to contribute and the book just came together. It was really easy and it was incredibly fun to work on. And it's interesting because I wrote a long introduction for it, but at the time I really felt like I didn't have anything I I needed to say. Like I didn't have enough time to say what I wanted to say because it's a subject that's really close to me. And so it's been really lovely to be able to just move into it and, and do all of that, to sort of do wolves and do dogs and teach my classes. I teach a course on the dog and art that's an honors class, and it's a community-engaged leadership course. And so we work with Cash Humane Society on that. So it's, it's really fun. It's sort of spread into everywhere now. I wanted to talk to you about that class because your students, as you said, partnered up with the Humane Society and they adopted, for, for the purpose of their class project, they adopted, they each adopted a dog. And then they experimented with the kinds of representation that they thought would help that animal get adopted. What what did they learn and, and what have you learned from watching them learn? Mm. So <clears throat> one of the things that's really interesting is seeing they have to do a lot of research in order to figure out what other places are doing to get their dogs adopted and there is no shortage of places they can look and to see what's effective whether sad stories are effective whether you know sort of sad eyed dogs are effective or whether happy stories are more effective uh, and what kinds of dogs get adopted over other kinds of dogs and the pandemic was really interesting you know everybody you know got their pandemic puppies and then as soon as everything started up again people realized they couldn't keep them when they had to leave. So there's been lots and lots of shifts and changes in terms of ownership and pet ownership. And so that's been really fun to watch the students read about that and learn about that and think about that. You know, I don't know if I thought that that particular project ended up being as educational as I hoped. And so this time I'm actually having them do social media and look at how the Cash Humane Society 
does their own social media, look at social media postings and digital representation of other humane societies across the U.S. And then they're going to do a presentation, group presentations before the Cash Humane Society with suggestions for ways to improve what they're doing. And I think that might be a more effective way to come at this. So we'll see what happens in December. Hmm. You mentioned that you have paintings of your dog, Mirabelle, at your home. Is there one, like, if if an art historian stumbles upon one of these paintings 500 years from now, which one are you hoping they come upon? So um, this actually ties it back to the very beginning in a way. So I wrote my dissertation on diptychs, which are essentially two panels that are hinged in the middle. And they close like a book. And the ones I worked on specifically had the virgin on one side and virgin and child typically. And then the the person who paid for it, the original owner, who is um, typically a man on the other side. And so when they close, they they almost kiss one another. But it's an object that's used with a book in combination with a book in order to pray, to inspire devotion. And I actually had a diptych painted of Mirabelle as a puppy because she was a psychotic puppy, but also a really (laughs) darling puppy. So on one side, she's psychotic. She's like all her horrifying teeth out and she looks like a monster. And then on the other side, she's just this perfect little angel. And that diptych to me is, is the, it, it sort of takes all my work for full circle, but it's also her in a nutshell. That's Laura Gelfin. She's a professor of art history and a specialist in the history of dogs and wolves in art. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Matt. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.